We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Change makers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. Have you ever wondered why you make yourself invisible? procrastinate or please others to get their approval? According to Dr. Friedman Schaub, our subconscious employs these types of survival patterns to protect us, but living in a survival mode has significant downsides. Dr. Schaub joins us today to discuss how to break free from common survival patterns. Dr. Schaub is a physician, researcher, personal development coach, and the author of the award-winning book, The Fear and Anxiety Solution. His new book is The Empowerment Solution, Six Keys to Unlocking Your Full Potential with the Subconscious Mind. Welcome, Dr. Shop. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. Well, it's wonderful to have you back on the show. It's been some time, but I'm so happy that you're here now. And this is such an important topic, doctor, because most people, you may even say everyone, but most people live their life in some sort of a survival pattern. So let's begin by discussing what a survival pattern is. Yes, you're absolutely right. And in general, I think we all use those patterns from time to time. I mean, whether it's procrastination or avoiding things that we are not comfortable with, whether it's sometimes over-pleasing or blending in with the people that we want to somehow be liked by. These are patterns we usually, you know, from time to time use. They become survival patterns when they are the predominant way we are interacting with the world. And when they are driven mainly by stress, anxiety, lack of self-worth, when those patterns make us basically stuck in living a life that is way smaller than it needs to be, that's when they become survival patterns. And that's when we have to ask ourselves, am I anxious and stressed because I'm living in those patterns, and those patterns are reinforcing my anxiety. So let's talk a little bit about our autopilot programming. Can you give us some background about the subconscious mind? How is it programmed, and how does it impact the way we live? Now, the subconscious is the deeper part of our mind that we all know, we all have interactions with, whether it's our you know, impulses, even though we really want to lose weight, but we still find ourselves in the drive-through of some of our, you know, our favorite uh, fast food joint or our dreams come from the subconscious, things we do automatically without even thinking like washing our hair or you know, eating while we are watching TV. The subconscious is very powerful. It plays a huge role in our lives. But the subconscious is also ultimately our inner protector. So when we are consciously and based on our uh, physical development early in our life, not really capable of protecting ourselves, the subconscious takes over and it says, okay, let me look at this world and let me look at you here. And, oh, wow, father is not really happy with you because you were, you know, too loud or, oh, wow, your friends are ditching you for somebody else. Mm, that is really dangerous. So the subconscious observes, takes notes, 
and tries to somehow figure out how to avoid pain, rejection, neglect, all of those things that can potentially make us not, quote unquote, survive. And these uh, conclusions of the subconscious observation are usually uh, defined by beliefs, beliefs such as I am not safe, others can be trusted, I'm not good enough, I don't fit in, failure needs to be avoided. These are just some of the core beliefs that are very early in our lives installed. Those beliefs are driving behaviors such as those survival patterns. Is it true then that, is, is it something like age five or seven, the majority of these programs are written and they're not even written by us, they're written by everyone around us? Well, they are basically caused by everything, everybody around us. You're right. They are not necessarily something we are, you know, consciously choosing and they are not something that defines us. You know, when someone is rejecting us, abusing us, hurting us, that doesn't mean that we deserve to be treated this way. But the subconscious takes it very personally. And that can happen even earlier in life. I mean, those subconscious protection patterns, they can happen even, you know, at birth. So this is something that is very, very deeply ingrained. And we are noticing those beliefs and patterns of the subconscious uh, getting triggered when we feel just like we felt early in our lives. You know, let's say, for example, you get somehow criticized by your boss and you shrink like the child get that got ridiculed by the teacher or you don't get a call back from your friend when you, you know, when you wanted to meet and you feel exactly this desperation that you had when you were a teenager and your friends, you know, just didn't want to talk to you anymore. When we feel very small, very powerless and driven by anxiety and insecurity, we know that these old patterns got reactivated. Doctor, what are the six most common survival patterns? And if you would just give us a brief description of each. So in, gro in broad strokes, there are two modes that I think are the most common ones, which are the avoidance and the pleasing mode. And each of those has three specific patterns that I also observe very often in my clients. So the avoidance mode has the, the victim pattern. And the victim pattern is basically when we are always feeling somehow things are done to us, whether it's that we are seeing other people as the ones that misunderstand us or mistreat us, or whether we see ourselves as a victim of our emotions, our circumstances. The victim pattern is a survival pattern because it always keeps you vigilantly looking around, waiting for whatever happened in the past to repeat itself. And usually it's more about blaming others than taking responsibility for ourselves. The second pattern is the invisibility pattern, which basically says you're better off not getting noticed, not saying something, and also disconnecting yourself from others than trying to reach out or trying to be a part of because that's not safe or you will not fit in. The third avoidance pattern is the procrastination pattern where we are avoiding failure or avoiding discomfort because we don't want to really do things that we feel are maybe too hard, too much for us to do. And so I think we all are very familiar with the procrastination pattern. We are just doing other things or looking for instant gratification. So these are all the avoidance. And the pleasers are more the ones that are reaching out for others for help, approval, a sense of security, a sense of belonging. So the first pattern is the chameleon pattern, where we are naturally blending in with anyone around us. We are just picking up how do we need to act? What questions do we need to ask? How do we need to, you know, believe in order to fit in with those people? The second one is the pleaser, the helper that can even lead to the martyr pattern where we just constantly overgive and over please and put ourselves always on the back burner. And then the third pattern is the lover pattern. And the lover pattern is a pattern of the codependent in some ways, the one that always looks for one specific person to feel complete, to have that person as the answers to all problems. And no matter how dysfunctional the relationship is, there is this holding on to the hope that one day that chosen one 
will come around or will change. And it's a very, very destructive pleaser pattern that may not be as common, but it's really important to look at because it can really completely derail your life when you're stuck in it. So do we usually have one dominant pattern? We, we probably can take on different ones at different times, but is there usually one that dominates our life? It's more contextual. It's very, you know, there are patterns of, you know, I used to be because of my beliefs and my anxiety, I used to be an overachiever at work. And, you know, when it came to having a career, but then in social settings, I was more an avoider trying just to, you know, keep people at arm's length. Now, my avoidance was much more about being the one that no one really knew. No one really saw my vulnerability, but I was, you know, around other people, but I avoided basically being seen uh, for anything else but what I wanted to be seen. No, so we can really be in different contexts, different or fall into different patterns. But, you know, we have to, if we want to resolve them step by step, focus on the one that drains you the most. You know, the thing about survival patterns is that they do two things to you. The first one is they give your power away. So you always either make other people as a threat. So you always focus on how can I get away from them? Or you make the other people as, you know, the saving grace, the ones that makes you feel better about yourself. And you never really, you know, feel like that you're empowered to live in your own way, to to walk your own path. And the second, uh, you would say, negative side effect of those patterns is that they disconnect uh, ourselves from ourselves. We are, we are not asking ourselves important questions such as, What's important to me? What do I want? What are my values? Who am I? What's my purpose? Because we are constantly in the self-defense mode. And if we feel powerless and disconnected from ourselves, it is like fuel for more anxiety and more insecurity. And that's why it's such a vicious cycle we can get into. So if this is happening at the subconscious level and we're not even aware of our behavior, how do we turn this around? Well, awareness is the first step. You know, it's uh, uh, my work is very much about conscious, subconscious collaboration. That means getting the conscious intellectual part of the mind in alignment with our subconscious, because the subconscious as an inner protector is a little bit like an overprotective nanny that just assumes that we are still little kids who cannot take care of ourselves. So we are operating with an outdated owner's manual. And so what we need to do consciously is to be aware, what are our old beliefs? What are those behavioral patterns that drain us and don't really, you know, fuel us or help us to grow? And then, as I describe in the book, really taking these step-by-step measures to outgrow and update those patterns so that they're really much more, you know, tapping into our potential rather than limiting us. And that's what, uh, you know, I think we all can do in order to make our lives more rich and fulfilling, to step out of that what makes us feel comfortable, but ultimately limits us in going more into that bigger version of ourselves. Because when we spend more time in our conscious mind, we can rewrite that programming. We can create new neural pathways. Absolutely. And that's the beauty about when you're consciously working with the subconscious that you become the leader of your life. I often talk about the empowered leader of your life who is leading the subconscious with consistency, with confidence, with commitment. But then there is a key also with compassion. You cannot just overwrite the subconscious with sheer willpower or logic. The subconscious cares very little about what makes sense, which is why so many emotions don't really make sense. The subconscious cares very much about how things feel. And unless we are feeling trust, we are feeling compassion for ourselves, we are feeling connected to ourselves, ultimately feeling a sense of appreciation and love for ourselves, the subconscious says, well, you're your own worst enemy, so sorry, I will still run my protective patterns. So this relationship with yourself, 
needs to change in order to step out of these patterns, not only on a conscious level, but also on the level of the emotions and, you know, for lack of a better word, in your heart. Why do people cling to these survival patterns so tightly? For example, we all know people that might live in that victim mentality that, like you described, everything happens to them. And if you try to point it out to that person, they become very defensive. They will take it on and say, that is not me. So why are we so protective of these patterns? Well, I think two things. One is, as a society, we are overwhelmed. We just feel bombarded constantly with pressure, with things that we are supposed to do or supposed to live up to. There are now so many sources that tell us this is the way and this is the truth and that's what you need to be, that we are confused and overwhelmed and we don't really spend time with ourselves and look inside. And that's why these patterns have one you know, big still purpose to be. They make us feel comfortable because they make us feel, well, we know that. We, it's familiar. Let's just stay in there. And at some point, they become our identity. And getting out of those patterns takes a little introspection. It takes time with yourself. And it takes also the step to be uncomfortable for a moment. You know, the discomfort is something we are so avoiding. We always feel like, you know, even when we are talking about something and then we are saying, well, sorry, this makes me uncomfortable to talk about this topic. I mean, why are we so attached to comfort? Because we are so scared that outside of the comfort zone, there is something we cannot handle. And I think that's really the two reasons why being in survival mode is something we are still glued to. But at the same time, that's also the reason why as a nation or as a society, we become more and more scared and more and more lost. I mean, when you really look at how many people are now clinging on to, you know, things that really absolutely don't make sense, it is because there is a fear driven need for someone to tell us the truth rather than going inside and looking for our truth. We are hoping someone else will point us away. So we become more and more powerless and more and more disconnected. And I think that's a very dangerous path we're on. When people learn to break these patterns, how do they become empowered? You know, it really is interesting. It's a very good question. It certainly varies from person to person. But the first step is that they feel there is a relief. It is almost like a Finally, there is acceptance. Finally, there is a sense of peace with himself. And then when they're realizing I'm actually in the driver's seat, I can choose. I can always see, oh, yeah, I have a choice to go down into this old pattern or move forward on a new way of being where I take responsibility, where I am self-reliant, where I use self-compassion, all these keys to tapping into your full potential that I describe in the book, when you're realizing, wow, these keys are also a sense of power. They make me the creator of my life. And there is a there is a sense of motivation and excitement that brings ultimately forth new ways of being. I have seen people changing careers. I have seen people you know, all of a sudden uh, going and writing books about their past rather than feeling like they are trapped in it. But I also have seen people staying exactly in the same place they were, but feeling so much more on purpose and so much more aligned because they see themselves as the ones that make a difference rather than feeling like the world is dominating them. So it's a, it's a you know, gradual unfoldment from feeling more, a relief and a peace to feeling truly I can create my life the way I choose to. And what, you know, I also find happens is that you may gain more clarity on why you're here. Mm-hmm. You know, when we're living in survival, we're not thinking about thriving. It's not a very creative state to be in. But when you're in this more empowered place, all of a sudden you do feel much more that there is something inside of you that you're here to share, or there is a gift that you all along knew was there, but you always kind of felt, well, that's not special enough. And then you feel the strength and the motivation actually to do something with this. 
You know what I find fascinating? I've been doing a lot of this work in my own life, and I have grown a lot, and, and I've been able to break a lot of my patterns. But there are times when I find myself backsliding, and some emotion will trigger me, and I'll go back to that default programming and way of thinking. But the beauty of it is, I can see it quickly now. You can see it happening, and, and I can transition myself out of it. Well, and that is mastery. Because mastery is not to be the domineering, uh, you know, uh, person who is just suppressing all those patterns and emotions that you don't like. Mastery is being able to see that all emotions and all those old ways of being have a reason to be there. And when they're coming up, doesn't mean that, you know, we're doing something wrong. It's just a call for us to make another choice. It's a call for us sometimes also to reassure the more inner protective part in us and say, you know, I know what I'm doing. You can trust me. I know this triggers you. Mastery is to accept all of us, the light and the dark. That what makes us feel powerful. That what makes us feel powerless and move forward with a sense of acceptance, but also believe in yourself. And that's what you're doing. It's important to note, like you're saying, it's a process. It's it's not like I flip a switch and I'm done and I'm a new person. This is an ongoing lifetime journey. But it's the most gratifying journey. Absolutely. And it gives you in itself purpose because, you know, often I think we are thinking of, you know, the that when we have an issue, it needs to be within 40 hours resolved, just like, you know, we are uh, I don't know, making an order on Amazon and we are expecting it to be there the next day. And so we are in this very fast resolve mode. And if something takes longer, we get easily impatient and lose interest or even hope. And that's not really our nature. We have to really remember how long it takes in the womb to finally develop and be born and how long it takes as a child to be able to to walk, let alone talk. And, you know, things in nature take time and they take consistency and they take patience. But all of those things are what ultimately gives us result and real permanent growth. And when we are wanting to skip steps or when we get too impatient or like many people do, they read one book after another, go to one seminar after another, but nothing really sticks because nothing really gets implemented well, I think we are just treading waters. And that's the way so many people live their lives today. We want a quick fix. We want the pill. We want whatever is going to fix us without us doing the work. And that's why I think that it's really good when we are starting a, a journey like the empowerment solution journey with curiosity, you know, with really realizing this is not about fixing something. This is about discovering something. This is about remembering something we have forgotten and every step along the way, you will gain more insights and another nugget of your power back. And that is the gratifying part. As long as we're only thinking about what we want to get rid of, it is like, you know, taking every day out the garbage. That's not really gratifying. So you want to always see you're doing it because you gain something back. And in the end, you gain yourself back, your authentic self. The book is The Empowerment Solution. Six Keys to Unlocking Your Full Potential with the Subconscious Mind. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Friedman and his work, you can visit drfriedman.com. Doctor, in our final moments, what's the takeaway? What would you like to leave our listeners with? Well, have really faith in yourself that you're always more than you think you are, that you're not defined by your shortcomings, by your patterns, by your anxiety. But these are also not something we should ignore or we should fight they are simply pointers that point us more closely to ourselves. And, and I know that from my own experience with anxiety and from many of the clients I worked with, anxiety and all those survival patterns, the stronger they are, the more they are pointing towards something inside of you that you haven't unearthed yet. And that is often your greatest gift. So stay open, stay curious, stay committed and stay compassionate with yourself. Doctor, thank you so much for joining us. I have really enjoyed this conversation, and I look forward to the time when you can come back. Anytime. Thank you so much for having me today. It was a pleasure. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. 
Do you feel lost on your journey to health and happiness? Then let us guide you on your path, personalized actions towards health. Your path is a series of choices you act on every day. We guide you on a personalized journey of dietary, exercise, genetic, supplement, and lifestyle choices that lead you to optimal health and happiness. Often taking the road less traveled leads to liberation. Your path is personal. Your journey, like you, is unique. Take action today. Head to bestpathforme.com. Again, that's bestpathforme.com. An invitation to appear on a radio show or podcast provides you with the opportunity to showcase your knowledge while promoting yourself, your products, and your business. It can elevate you as an expert, boosting your reputation, but only if you make a good impression. If you want to stand out as a great guest who is remembered, celebrated, and gets invited back, you need to give the host and listeners what they want while communicating with confidence and charisma. Contrary to the old adage, not all publicity is good publicity. Some can cause more harm than good. Hi, this is Joan Herman. As a public relations specialist, producer, and radio host who has conducted thousands of interviews, I have experienced all kinds of conversations. Some are great and leave the audience wanting more, while others are uninteresting, significantly diminishing the guest's appearance. After years on air, I can tell within minutes if a conversation will be stimulating, with listeners staying tuned in, or not. Being prepared with a compelling message makes all the difference. In my training program, It's Your Time to Shine, tips to be a successful sought-after radio and podcast guest, I provide valuable information that will empower you to make the most of any media appearance. You work hard to get the booking, so don't waste the opportunity because of a lack of skills or preparation. To learn more, visit my website, joanherman.com slash media training. That's joanherman.com slash media training. Hi, it's Linda from Linda Mitchell Coaching and Healing. Imagine yourself remaining calm, clear-headed, stress-free, and positive, even in the midst of life's greatest challenges. Good news, there's a proven process to help you do just that. And I'm living proof. Go to lindamitchellhealing.com to take a free assessment and learn the top ways you sabotage your success and happiness and how to finally break away from those old patterns. Let's talk after your free assessment at lindamitchellhealing.com. to your health. Joining me today is Dr. Rojini Raj, a board-certified gastroenterologist and television personality. Dr. Raj is here today to discuss digestive discomfort. Welcome, Dr. Raj. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Happy to be here. So, Doctor, digestive discomfort can be the result of more than just overeating. It may be caused by a condition called EPI or exocrine pancreatic insufficiency. Tell us about EPI. Sure. So EPI stands for exocrine pancreatic insufficiency, as you just said, and that's a condition where your pancreas is not producing enough digestive enzymes to digest your food properly. So what you may experience in that case are symptoms such as abdominal pain, bloating, diarrhea, or unexplained weight loss. And the issue is many of these symptoms are also symptoms that are similar to other GI conditions. So it's really important to speak to your doctor if you're experiencing these symptoms frequently or on a recurring basis to make sure you get the proper diagnosis and ultimately the proper treatment. And you can certainly learn more about these symptoms at identifyepi.com. Doctor, who is at greatest risk for having this? And, and how do we know when it really is more than just overeating? I mean, you know what our diets are like today. So how can we tell the difference? Sure. Well, in terms of EPI, it has been associated with certain conditions like cystic fibrosis, chronic pancreatitis, which is a chronic inflammation of the pancreas, or even people who've had some type of pancreatic surgery can develop this condition. Uh, but in terms of how do you tell if it's just an occasional indigestion or something that needs to be investigated, it's really about listening to your body, taking, paying attention to the frequency of the symptoms. So if it's just once in a while when you know you've kind of really overindulged, then that's probably something that happens to all of us occasionally. But if it's happening frequently, if it's recurring, if it's something that's affecting your life or your ability to enjoy your life, then it's certainly time to talk to your doctor and get to the bottom of the condition and make sure you know what it is so you can treat it appropriately. Can EPI be dangerous if left undiagnosed? Well, it certainly can affect your ability to absorb the nutrients that you need. It can lead to vitamin deficiencies, um, the weight loss as well it can be concerning. 
and it can be associated with some other very serious underlying conditions. We talked about cystic fibrosis and chronic pancreatitis, so it's certainly not something that you want to leave undiagnosed. Um, you want to get to the bottom of it and treat it. And where can our listeners go to get more information? IdentifyEPI.com has a lot more information about the condition and the symptoms associated with it. Dr. Raj, thank you so much for being here with us and for bringing this condition to our attention. Again, IdentifyEPI.com is a wonderful source for more resources. Thank you for being here. Thank you very much. We'll be right back. This is WNYM, Hackensack, New Jersey, New York City. to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. Is it possible to be a successful leader and a compassionate human being? Today's guest, Jim Blake, says not only is it possible, but it's the key to effective leadership. In his book, The Zen Executive, Jim creates a blueprint for enlightened leadership. He draws from ancient teachings to help us achieve personal and professional goals, overcome challenges, and take risks. Jim is the CEO of a 130-year-old global nonprofit and author of the book, The Zen Executive, Gems of Wisdom for Enlightened Leadership. Welcome, Jim. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be here with you. Jim, integrating spiritual principles with executive leadership principles is probably more important today than ever before. Would you agree that what we're experiencing in the world, that that this is really a good approach to achieving what we want to achieve? Actually, I do. And there's numerous reasons that I feel that way. But, But primarily, just as you alluded to, the sort of state of the world produces so much anxiety and stress uh, for the typical individual that one of the ways leaders can have a tremendous influence is by removing that sort of stress and anxiety from the workplace. And you do that through compassionate leadership. You do that through being a supportive leader, creating an environment where uh, associates can flourish, they can relax, they can feel heard, they have a sense of engagement. Because I think, as we all know, many of us who have uh, worked in the workplace, when you have the opposite experience of that, it doesn't just, you don't just leave it at the office at 5 o'clock. You often carry it at home. It impacts how you interact with your family, your pets, your friends. Um, I, I, uh, I hearken back to a time when I had a particularly difficult boss, and I was on call a lot on the weekend. I came up through information technology, so there was a lot of weekend call work. And I can remember every time I would see that name and number come up, I would have a physical reaction. Um, and, and it's those kinds of things that just contribute um, to you know stress and anxiety and so forth. So leaders today really have a, a tremendous opportunity to break that cycle and provide a space where people um, don't have to carry so much stress and anxiety. I can relate to what you're saying. I think my career, I kind of came up with you have to be that tough manager, that leader that you know cracks the whip in order to get any type of result from your employee. And I can remember starting out doing public relations for a Fortune 500 company, and I had the same feelings that you did. I would get calls on a Sunday that the CEO wanted to work on a speech, and we would all have to go in, and it, it just wasn't pleasant to be a part of that. And and so I, I think what you're saying about bringing compassion and self-care and understanding that your employees need self-care as well, I think that's so important. I couldn't agree more. And I think the the part that seems counterintuitive due to the Western, you know, the decades of Western culture philosophy on leadership, which you alluded to, it's counterintuitive to suggest that I could have uh, our associates have fun at work, that I could treat them with kindness, that I could be understanding that life happens and that they may be late or they may miss a deadline. But the truth is, when you do these things, you're actually creating a space for your associates to be more productive. If you just look at it logically, which do we think is more productive? An associate that is constantly being yelled at, is stressed out and anxious when they're at work, afraid to make a mistake, fear, fearful to take a risk, or someone who feels appreciated, heard, supported, um, feels like it's okay to have fun at work as long as they, they get their tasks done on time. So it's, it really seems sort of logical, but we sort of missed the point here in the West in terms of the connection between a person's well-being and their performance. Jim, when did you learn all of this? You've been a boss for many years. Was there ever a time when you didn't practice this? When did you have that aha moment? Oh, my goodness, Joan. Um, 
I actually probably owe a lot of people an apology from early on in my leadership <laughs> career. I mean, I was not, uh, I was not a conscious leader. Um, I fell right into the, the same traps of leadership. I was taught by those who had hierarchical mindsets and thought that being a boss was telling people what to do and demanding this and demanding that. So certainly early in my career, um, I, I did not experience this. But it was really, and it wasn't any particular aha moment. It happened over time. But I will say, maybe it was an aha experience. I had a particularly difficult uh, experience with one particular boss who was very demanding, um, very critical, uh, intolerable of mistakes. And and it just really, really impacted me uh, inside and outside of work. And I really began to notice just how much of an impact it was having on my personal life. And so it was sort of at that point when I made the decision that there has to be a better way and I am never, ever going to be this kind of boss. And so how can I cultivate a philosophy and a leadership style that does the opposite of what I'm experiencing right now and actually nurtures and uplifts people because I think that will have much greater results. And so I just began to develop techniques and tools and read and study and, and compile all of these things together that I think do just that uh, and so far, it has been very successful. You write a lot about a mission statement. What does this statement look like? Yeah, so this is really important. And I know, um, you know, all companies have mission statements and lots of uh, individuals like to write their mission statements. But what I've learned over time with experience is they can be really compelling and can actually become sort of a guiding principle uh, that sort of informs your decision making and sort of uh, your why, if you will whether it's an organization or an individual. And so the more that the mission statement itself comes from sort of where you are today, what do you represent today? What are you in the world and what is your purpose? Um, And if you can then make it short and compelling. So in an organization, you want as many people to be able to connect to it as possible. So we always, we always develop mission statements now from the ground up, getting everyone's input. Because the more it actually connects to who you are as an organization and the individual people that serve there, the more likely they are to remember it, abide by it, and sort of have it become a part of their purpose. And so short, compelling, meaningful, really meaningful to to everyone who is behind this, what ends up happening is that you end up with sort of a collective affirmation, if you will. It goes beyond just a mission statement and sort of becomes this thing that is bigger than all of us, but something we're all connected to and striving for. And so um, there have been cases like here where the mission statement we have is really, like I said, a sort of a guiding touchstone. Whenever we're considering new business opportunities or endeavors, the first thing we do is go back and say, does this connect to our mission statement? Does it support why we're here and why we're doing what we're doing? And so short, again, compelling connected to as many people as you can, and you end up with this sort of collective consciousness and energy that's all moving in the same direction behind something that's really inspirational and not necessarily aspirational. Yeah, it's, it's making that switch from the old style of a dictatorship to more of a collaboration. Yes, indeed. So for someone who's listening to us right now, and he or she is an employee, and you know we're talking about the leaders and, and the things that they should be bringing to that role, if, if an employee doesn't have a boss who subscribes to the things that we're discussing here, how can that person navigate the environment that he or she may find himself in? Well, that's a, there's a lot in the book about just that. And it, it has a lot to do with your, your individual posture. So your inner posture in terms of your thoughts and emotions and how you manage those um, and how those can help translate to what you're experiencing. So that's one thing. And then secondly, at any point in time where you can find um, courses, techniques, um, or offerings on some of the things we talk about in the book, and just bring those to the table at work. Um, because, you know, bosses aren't necessarily going to do this work themselves. Um, leaders aren't the ones that uh, are not already on the path. And so a way you can sort of bring it in is to say, hey, I stumbled across this. I think it would be great for the team. Is there any way we could have this person come in or we could attend this webinar together or things of that nature? So you're subtly bringing it in as something for the overall team and you hope that 
what is presented will rub off on not only the leader, but also the other associates on the team. But in terms of your ability to navigate a, a, a more corporate um, structure that doesn't sort of hold to these values, it really becomes about your own self-care. And so the state of your thoughts and emotions and how those can support you. And we talk a lot about those things in the book and some of the techniques you can use uh, to help navigate uh, a space like that. And so it really boils down to that every one of us has the opportunity to be a leader and we lead by example. And so whether our boss is implementing any of these strategies, we each can because we're going to, as you said, rub off on the people around us. That's a great observation and really an important point uh, because long before I, I came to the role I'm in now, I was in that spot. I was in a, corp- a corporate world that was largely hierarchical in leadership um, and, of course, very demanding and always wanting more and more. And, and, and the business was always held above the associates that were serving. And so I became a different kind of leader. And I began to lead my teams in my particular way. And I began to do my work in a particular way and interact with people in a particular way that suited sort of my belief system for how I wanted to be in the world. What that led to is I didn't always fit in. Uh, the good news is it got results. And so, um, there, I, you know, people made fun of me and talked about my, my Zen style, which is sort of the, the ty- why the title of the book is what it is. Um, and in some cases, uh, I didn't necessarily fit in with uh, the rest of the leadership group, but uh, the people I served with and, of course, me were much happier, uh, much more productive and uh, successful in what we were doing. And your book is called The Zen Executive, but these are things that any one of us can implement in all areas of our lives. That is exactly correct. Um, It's really about, uh, like I said, the whole first section of the book is really about that. It's really about how to align yourself to go about being in this world in a different way. So there are all kinds of tools and tips and techniques for for self-care, for how to align your consciousness, and, and really focus on getting yourself healthy because whether you're a leader in a leadership position or an individual the more you can align yourself with healthy practices uh the healthy you're going to healthier you're going to be overall and so it begins with that and then the, the remainder of the book is focused in on how now that i've sort of got my house in order what kind of leader how can i apply this to leadership and the teams that i serve with jim would you share one or two of your favorite techniques from the book <clears throat> sure i think uh there's a whole practice around really understanding how your thoughts and emotions impact your experience of the world. And I often refer to this as sort of the, the inner posture, but it's sort of, um, it's beginning to understand that you are not your thoughts. So every single one of us have this voice in our heads that is constantly chattering. <laughs> and sometimes we spiral down rabbit holes uh, around fear, anxiety, and so forth. And so it's really beginning to understand, okay, I am not my thoughts. I can be the observer of these thoughts. I can notice the thoughts that I'm having, and then I can create some practices to sort of shift them or change them. So if I'm noticing I'm spiraling in fear about an upcoming meeting or an upcoming thing, I can choose to notice that and then create some affirmations, which are just positive statements about what I want to be, uh, that give, that occupy the mind and, and stop the spiral of, of negative thinking, if you will. So really understanding how thoughts and emotions impact uh, not only your inner state, but also how you experience the world. So I'll I'll talk about that a little bit more. If you have a belief uh, that you are just unlucky in life, Mm -hmm. then you sort of create this frame uh, and lens of how you see the world. And so everything you see that happens that may or may not be even just a little bit bad, you attribute that to being unlucky. And because you've set yourself up that way, you're never open to the possibility or you never really see the things around you or the opportunities that may pop up that would be the opposite of that. So you just continue, you've drawn a conclusion and you just continue to gather evidence to support that conclusion. And so just that mental framework, you lose the capacity to see other opportunities that might be there that might be something different than you being unlucky. And so... That's how our mental, just simple decisions and belief systems we have about ourselves and and uh, our experience of the world 
continue to impact future experiences. I hope that makes sense. It does. And, and you know, that's such a great example because that's probably, I believe, one of the biggest things that keeps us stuck because we have that belief that we're a victim or we're unlucky or things don't work out for us. And then we set out to see the world that way. We look for the things to confirm what we already believe. And you're right. We never step outside of that belief system. So I think if people just follow that one piece of advice, they will see major changes in their lives. 100% agree. And then the second one I would share is just to find some sort of practice that allows you to still the mind. Uh, for me, it's meditation. I, I have great success with meditation. I'm not, you know, three hours long or anything like that, just 10 to 15 minutes a day. But something that actually stills the mind that allows you to sort of create some space between you and that, that constantly chattering mind that I talked about. Some people take walks. Some people garden. Artists like to do their art. So it doesn't really matter what it is. It's something that sort of gets you out of your head uh, and, and creates some space because it's in that space where intuition can come in, where guidance can come in, where you can have aha moments. But if you're just constantly spiraling in the chattering mind, you create no space for inspiration or intuition. And so whatever that practice looks like for you, uh, I would say try to find that. And you, again, you will then begin to really be surprised at the coincidences that show up, at the ideas you have, at the aha moments that start to happen more frequently. It's really an important practice to, to help us get some space and create an opportunity for growth. Yeah, and I think creating that space is really important because there are so many things that are being thrown at us these days, financial instability, um, the economy, a pandemic. We have all of these things that seem so out of our control. However, like you said, when we create that space, you then can have some creative thinking, you can navigate these challenges more effectively. And so I think that really is a, um, a great point, especially for what we're facing in today's world. 100% agree. If you could leave our listeners with any piece of advice, what would that be? I'll tell you this. The most profound change for me, the most profound transformation for me of all the things I talk about is self-acceptance and self-worth. Work on those two things. Uh, we are all so hard on ourselves and such critics of everything uh, in our experience and it makes it really difficult to see the unlimited potential that we may have or see even the smallest potential we may have because we have this struggle in terms of our own self-worth and our own self-acceptance. And there's this societal pressure to conform uh, at all times and in all things and to worry so much about what they think. Um, and so my invitation is to really begin to explore that, really begin to explore within yourself where you may be feeling pressure to conform to this, that, or the other, to behave a certain way, to have a certain job, to dress a particular way, because each and every one of us are unique and individual expressions that uh, will only occur once in the universe. And the idea is to be authentic in that individual expression. In fact, I would argue that's your superpower, is your unique presence and your unique gifts in the world no one else has. If you'd like to learn more about Jim and his work, you can visit IamJimBlake.com. Jim, thank you so much for joining us. I have really enjoyed this conversation. It was truly my pleasure, and thank you again so much for the honor and privilege to be with you, and congratulations on all of your success. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Is your house congested? Is your office stuffed up? Is your life clogged? Hi, I'm Gail Gruenberg, CPOCD, Chief Executive Organizer of Let's Get Organized, an award-winning professional organizing company serving clients who live with chronic disorganization. A space can get stopped up just like a human body. Occasionally or over time, our systems grind to a halt. When that happens, we feel overfull, sluggish, bloated, out of alignment, and cramped. The solution is to remove the blockage. For a body, that may mean taking a decongestant or laxative to maintain good health. For a physical space or life challenge, that means making decisions and choices about what to eliminate and creating and maintaining organized systems. 
I'm Gail Gruenberg with Let's Get Organized. Working closely with you on site or virtually, we help you clear the clutter in your home or office and show you how getting organized will change your life. If you're ready to release the congestion and let things flow, call us at 201-613-2733 or visit our website at lgorganized.com. Hello, doctor. Hi, business owner. Hey there, freelancer. Timing in life is everything. Famed psychologist Dr. Dennis Waitley explains that timing is seen as something over which the individual has a degree of control. That is certainly true in our lives and in our businesses. Business success is certainly affected by timing. Healthcare is totally about timing. Most folks agree that the key to a great treatment is usually early detection and intervention. This is exceedingly true in regard to accounts receivable issues in your business or your practice. This is Vito Mazza, your cash flow specialist with Kinem.com. For financial help, a business needs to have a systematic approach that will enhance cash flow and profitability by speeding up slow-paying insurance companies and vendors and collecting from clients and patients less expensively and more effectively. The real secret is for you, the owner, to adopt an early diplomatic intervention system. This will help you collect the money owed without damaging patient or customer relationships and help medical practices get their insurance claims paid a good bit faster. I'm licensed, bonded, insured, HIPAA compliant, and I can help. Please visit Kinem.com forward slash Vito dash Mazza or call 800-850-5110. Thank you for joining us. I hope you found the show informative. At Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided is the opinion of our guest and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on our site, listen to past shows on demand, read our digital articles, check out our team and book club, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow us on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications.